Welcome to Let It Low Paid at Large. I'm Let It Low Paid. For much of human history, there was no way to measure time or weight, mass, height, or volume. But from the cubit to the kilogram, the inch to the speed of light, measurement is a powerful tool that humans invented to make sense of the world. In Beyond Measure, the hidden history of measurement from cubits to quantum constants, James Vincent, a senior reporter for The Verge, the Fox Media site devoted to technology and society, tells the story of the relationship of humans with the physical world. It's published by W.W. Norton and brings James Vincent to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Leonard. You write that this book grew out of an assignment in 2018 to interview scientists at the International Bureau of Weights and Measures regarding the weight of the kilogram. What was the concern there? So um, it was an uncanny problem for the scientists. And in an essence, the kilogram was losing weight. Uh, so losing for a long weight? time, losing weight, exactly, which, as you can imagine, is a, bit of a, is a bit of a sticky problem for something meant to define the kilogram itself. Um, and I, I should stress it was not using losing a lot of weight. About 50 micrograms are about the weight of a single eyelash. But honestly, obviously, you know, for scientists working in high-precision uh, laboratories, that makes a hell of a difference. Um, the, the problem was that for millennia, sorry, not for millennia, for centuries, the metric system has been defined using or was defined using physical standards. Mm. So there was such a thing as a kilogram and as a meter. And the kilogram, every kilogram in the world was equal to that physical standard. It, um, it was but, a lump uh, of metal that was called Lagrange K. That's right. It was called Lagrange K, but that was sort of the nickname. Officially, it was known as the International Prototype Kilogram. It was kept in a, in a triple sealed um, underground vault in Paris. And so that was the, 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 the weight of that lump of metal was the standard for the kilogram. And as you say, it was uh, how, how many, <laughs> for how many years was it that? And why was it losing a little bit of its weight? So it was the second of its type. The first kilogram was called the kilogram of the archives, and that was introduced in 1799, which is when the metric system was invented um, during the French Revolution. And that was when the metric system began to be spread across Europe. Um, so for a couple of centuries, they had one lump of metal and then they replaced it with another. And those were used to define the kilogram. Why exactly it was losing weight is still actually a bit of a mystery. You know, the kilogram was made out of this very, very stable metal alloy called platinum iridium. And it should have been sort of, you know, not impervious to all wear and tear, but we don't know what was happening to it. One theory is that there was something called outgassing, which is when there were microscopic um, bubbles of gas trapped inside the metal that were slowly escaping through these, you know, tiny, tiny invisible pores in the, in the, in the surface. What are the earliest evidences of measurement that we know of? Aren't they animal bones that were carved with notches? Yeah, that's one sort of theory. And I guess this sort of depends on how you define measurement. Is measurement the same as counting? Or is that, you know, counting? Is that mathematics instead? But the bones that you mentioned, there are a couple of these, and they're about 20,000 to 30,000 year years old. And they're carved with, as you say, series of notches, but they're usually sort of grouped in groups of five or something like that. And one theory is that whoever carved these notches wasn't necessarily doing it for decoration purposes, but they were doing it to count something. What they were counting, we have no idea. But one theory is that they were counting um, days in order to mark the months. 
because you know that is one unit of measurement unit of time which humans didn't really have to invent the month the day those things exist because of astronomical cycles although the oldest one i gather 33,000 years old is called the wolf bone and it has 45 notches yeah so a li- yeah a little bit more a little bit more than a month there mm-hmm. um another theory is that it was maybe tracking someone's um, menstruation cycle but again we really you know these and, we really don't know what was going on with these and where was it found uh, i believe the wolf bone was found in Czech- czechoslovakia hmm. um but there's been a couple found in different locations so, so that's sort of the earliest archaeological record but obviously when we get to um sort of ancient civilizations so i'm talking about you know the ancient babylonians the sumerians the egyptians this is when we first start to see really stable systems of measurement so the ancient egyptians for example they come up with um they have two units of measurement that they use that are cubits Um, One which is the royal cubit, which is slightly longer, and one of which is the common cubit. And that is a unit defined as the length from the elbow to the fingertip. You know, that's something that appears a lot in the Bible, for example. So it's a unit that's been around for a very long time. You traveled along the banks of the Nile in search of an ancient Egyptian floodwater monitor. Why (laughs) Why was measuring the annual depth of the Nile uh, an essential task in ancient Egypt? So Egypt, the region of Egypt has practically no rainfall at all. You know, pretty, pretty much like a few millimeters a year is what you're really hoping for. So the Sounds Nile like the mid- Midwest today. <laughs> I, I can't say I've been to the Midwest, but if it's as the dry as that, I think you've got good rivers. The Mississippi has lost a lot of water recently. Oh dear. Well, you'll need your own nilometers then. <laughs> so these are what they are for. Nilometers are for measuring the depth of the water, of the flooding. Um, so these floods provided all of the sort of irrigation for the agriculture. But, you know, whether the flood was going to be a good one or a bad one was pretty important for the Egyptian state to know ahead of time. Because, you know, if it was going to be a bad flood, they needed to save up on the grain and make sure there wouldn't be riots and things like that. So they created this really elaborate system using these nilometers, which essentially are big rulers stuck in the river. And they would use them to predict the depth of the flood each year. So I think for me, what's so fascinating about the nilometers is that they show how measurement is, you know, vital to the functioning of a big, complex state, big, complex society like the like ancient Egypt. You know, if you if you can't measure what's going on, you can't predict what will happen in the future. Weren't dead pharaohs buried with measure sticks in hand? (laughs) They often were. Mm. So this is a sort of reference to... um, the cubits and as i say there was a common cubit that was used in building but there was also uh, this this royal cubit and it, it was seen as such a sort of symbol of their authority that they would make cubits in gold because if you, if you think about what measurement is doing for these people you know measurement is the tool by which not only you predict the flooding of the nile each year but it's the tool that you use to build the pyramids you know it's the tool you use to build temples to build your granaries to build your roads so measurement in many early civilizations is sort of like a symbol of authority um and this is only a theory of mine and i'm sure there's sort of other other approaches to this but if you think about the scepter you know as a symbol of power a short rod that you hold in your hand i think there's probably a direct connection between that and ancient measuring sticks is it just a coincidence that the measurer measuring stick is called a ruler and and the, the leader of 
of a society is called a ruler? <laughs> I don't think that's a coincidence either. I mean, it, it's obviously different in different languages, but in English, at least, you know, the Latin for ruler comes, I believe, uh, sorry, the English for Latin, English for ruler comes from the Latin regulum, which is, you know, to, to rule in the sort of practical sense. And there is, I think, a direct conceptual connection between those two ideas you know if you're ruling something literally if you're measuring it you are setting the rules for the world you are saying how big it is how long it is you know you are defining reality so for rulers it was really important uh, for them to set systems of measurement um, and it had all sorts of other benefits for the state you know if you're going down to the market to trade you want to be sure that your length or your weight is the same as your traders so you know it was really important for early uh, leaders to make sure there were consistent units of measurement. How early in human development do, did the right to assess and enforce measurement become part of political authority? Do we know? We think it sort of goes back as long as there has been political authority. So one of sort of the oldest legal texts that we have is the Code of Hammurabi. Um, and that was used by the ancient Babylonians. And that's where we get, you know, famous um, injunctions like an eye for an eye. And the Code of Hammurabi, one of the world's oldest legal texts, has rules in it about enforcing measurement. You know, so that's it, it goes back as long as there has been written rules. There have been people trying to enforce measurements. Ed, I would assume that it took centuries before standardization became the norm. Well, uh, they were sort of different levels of standardization. You know, in, even in ancient Egypt, there was a form of standardization in that um, we have sort of records of the master builders who were given these cubits that they would be summoned at certain times during the year and they would have their cubit checked against an official standard. But, you know, as the centuries have gone on, as the millennia have gone on, um, the rules that we use to enforce this sort of standardization have become a lot more thorough, a lot more consistent. So sort of one of the early innovations that we see um, really from the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans onwards is the use of public standards. So these would be sort of sample measurements or sample capacity measures carved into stone by the market so the city whether that's Athens or whatever it was would dictate you know a certain capacity measure for you know weighing out your grain and they would carve an example of that into rock in the market and that way if you were going down to the market you could check that your measure of grain was the right one and these ancient societies like the Greeks and the Romans also had their own sort of um, marketing standards officers so these would be um, people who were empowered by the city to go down to the market and check that no one was being cheated with measurements. Don't studies suggest that measurement is a skill we acquire with age? Yeah, absolutely. We do sort of um, psychological tests on, or there have been psychological tests done on children. And uh, they show that when you're very young, you really don't know how to measure stuff. You just, you know, you just look at it, you eyeball it. And everyone, anyone who's hang around with a kid, you know, whether they're trying to, I don't know, measure out sweets or they're trying to do a little bit of cooking. They obviously, you know, they don't really understand what it is. And the older we get, the more advanced we are in our measuring tools. So one of the first things that children learn to do is to use their own bodies as a sort of um, template for measurement. So if they're asked to, say, compare the height of two towers, they'll stand up to the tower and they'll see where it comes up to on their body. As they get a little bit older than that, they'll learn that you can use units that are sort of not connected to the body. And they'll start to learn how to use rulers. To measure and this, see. And to measure with them, exactly. 
Weren't old systems of measurement based on the human body, such as hand-to-elbow cubit or the thumb-width-inch? They're intuitive, yeah. but inaccurate because our bodies vary in size. <laughs> they do, they do. Yeah, the, the oldest units of measurement that we have uh, and that we know societies have tend to be based either on the human body or on sort of some area of stability taken from nature. So what we're really looking for, as you suggest, when we create units of measurement is units that are more or less consistent. And that is sort of true for the body. You know, it depends upon the level of precision that you require, but a foot is about a foot, a pace is about a pace. And this is why all these ancient um, societies develop these units. They tend to get a bit creative, though, when they are looking at things like longer distances of length, for example. And this was like one of this was one of my favorite little um, alleyways of research that I got into the book, which was looking at how different um, societies measured length when they were sort of plotting distance for journey. So there are lots of weird examples. There's one um, uh, sort of uh, society in the Nicobar Islands in the Indian Ocean who used to measure the length of a journey based on the number of coconuts you would drink during <laughs> uh, the travel. So, you'd, you know, you'd be going to the island next over and you'd be saying that's a 10 coconut a journey or that says 15 coconut. Um, and there were all sorts of other weird units. There's one um, called the Peninculma, which is the length at which a dog's bark can be heard. And there's another one called the Poronkusima, uh, which was used by the Sami people of northern Europe and roughly translated is uh, reindeer's urine. So it's the, the length a reindeer can walk before it needs to go to the toilet. <laughs> well, we hope that all reindeers need the same amount of time to, before they need to <laughs> urinate. In, in agricultural societies, the ability to measure the passage of time, to, to follow a calendar, um, a pattern of sowing and reaping made harvest possible. Uh, do we have any idea where, where that kind of thinking developed first? Because uh, weather it, is different of, in different places. Yeah, I, it's one of those things that is lost to time, I guess. I, I, as I sort of mentioned earlier, some of the earliest units that we know about would have been created from the natural world. So you have days, you have months, you have seasons. And, you know, there are natural cycles to the planet that we live on. And these, I think, would have sort of inspired people to come up with these these lengths, these units. Um, and yeah, for uh, agricultural societies, it was super, super important to be able to measure things out, not only to know, as you suggest, sort of when to harvest and when to sow plants, but also to divide up the land. Um, and early units of land measurement are really interesting, I think, because they're often not uh, they're not sort of um, concrete, but they 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 are flexible. They expand and contract. So there's an old Irish unit um, called the collop, which is a measure of land. But it's the amount of land you need to measure. You need to sorry to graze a single cow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that that sounds sort of a bit silly and inconsistent. But actually, it's a unit of measurement that encodes really important information in it, because if you think about it, if you're selling someone, say, 20 acres of land or however, however much it is, that doesn't really give you much information about what the land is like unless you go see it yourself. But if you say you're selling them 20 collops, then you know for certain what can be done with that land because a collop is going to be very different in size, whether it's measuring a lush sort of uh, pasture or whether it's measuring a barren hillside. So this is something that I think is fascinating about early units of measurement is that they are they sort of uh, vary in size, but the way that they vary 
encodes really important information. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is James Vincent. His book, Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Qubits to Quantum Constants, is published by W.W. Norton. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, consistency in measurements is really important. Didn't special police forces roam the Byzantine Empire checking weights? (laughs) <laughs> yes, those were the bulletai, I believe they were called. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, um, you know, a really important thing for uh, cities to do in order to make sure that um, their citizens had a good time down at the market. And there were all sorts of uh, variations of this role. Um, another example was in England. Um, it was called the Court of Pipudra. Um, and that is a sort of corruption um, of the French word for dirty feet. Well, it's really- um, like pie power powder. Pie powder, pie I, powder. I there we are. Initially, was... it had to do with the, the amount of powder you put in a pie, but it isn't. <laughs> I tried to pull off a French accent there, and you 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 caught me up on that very uh, very no, neatly. Very yeah, good. pie 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 powder. <laughs> I would have said pie powder. <laughs> the, okay. okay. You, you uh, say but... that you you describe it as the lowest and most expeditious court of justice in England. Yes, yes. And it was because you would not want to wait around for there to be sort of any formal court process, but there would simply be this wandering court that if there was some sort of a complaint at the market, you know, someone says he's got dodgy weights and he's he's selling me short on his uh, his mutton or whatever it is, you'd go to the court of pie powder or pea, uh, pea pudra or however you want to say it, <laughs> and you'd get justice done. Before clocks were invented, weren't cooks advised to do things like boil their eggs for the length of time, wherein you say a, a miserere, a, a psalm? Yeah, yeah. So they, because, they were tying you know, religion to measurement. <laughs> they would tie something that people knew to measurement. Um, I think this is sort of like... We, you know, we think of measurement as something that has to be standardized and that has to be created by a central authority. But a lot of measurements, especially early measurements, are sort of improvised. You know, they're made up on the spot by people who just needed some sort of rule of thumb. You know, and there we are. (laughs) When I said rule of thumb, I didn't even think about that. But, you know, what is a rule of thumb but an impromptu measurement? You know, you're measuring out an inch Um, with, with the egg example. It's because, you know, although um, clocks were invented in the Middle Ages, Middle Ages onwards, they weren't very common. You couldn't really get one. You maybe had a local uh, church that had a, a clock in the bell tower or whatever it was. And you certainly didn't have one that had an accurate second or minute hand on it. So if you've got to count a few minutes, you'd have to turn to something that people knew. In this case, they'd say a miserere. And I've got to say, I have tried boiling an egg on the time it takes to say a miserere, and it's not a very good egg. It's a very runny egg, but maybe that's what people liked in the Middle Ages. Well, some of the other uh, old measurements have become part of the language. For example, a stone's throw. Uh, Yeah. It it once signified how far a man could toss a rock, Uh, and now we just say, well, they live a stone's throw from the river. But I still think that works, right? It's, it's it's one of these improvised units of measurement that, you know, I think are still relevant today. 
Um, and I, you know, when we think about it, I think there are more of these than we would initially consider. You know, so I think, for example, if I'm getting on a plane um, and I'm going from London to New York or something like that, I'll count that journey in the number of movies I can watch. I'll go, oh, it seems like a long journey, but you know what? It's about three movies and then I'll be done. And that's, I think, you know, it's an impromptu unit of measurement. And we do this all the time in our lives. We, by uh, not just sticking to our watches. Well, yeah, of course, not, it gets not... confusing when you go from London to New York because it's a five-hour difference. Yeah, or four hours right now. Even more confusing because we've got um, we're at different um, daylight saving time. We're going to um, set our clocks moment. back next week. Yes, exactly. And we uh, we set our cl- uh, our clocks back a week ago already. So we're we're even more out of sync than normal. <laughs> wow. Well, in in ancien regime France, didn't units vary a lot across the country? So that uh, a a pint a pint, I guess in Paris contained three times as much as a pint in uh, another part of the country. Uh, Yeah. Were were they the, uh, uh, were complaints about weights and measures among the most frequently cited grievances? Yeah, they were. So this is sort of a a problem that builds over the centuries, right? Is that, you know, I've talked a bit about um, how measurements are sort of improvised and there's some form of standardization, but not a lot. And over time, and in certain countries, this becomes a real problem, right? And in France, in Ancien Régime France, that's prior to the revolution, it's really, really bad. So there are about, there are estimated to be about a thousand units in use in France, but about a quarter of a million variations. Mm-hmm. So as you say, you know, you you have a pint measure, a pint measure, and that would differ on depending on what town you were in. And this was partly due to the sort of... Um, the the power and the political structures of France at this time, which were very much sort of um, devolved power. So you would have the aristocracy and they would uh, retain the right to define units of measurement. And that meant that they often came up with their own variations that weren't, you know, that were confusing, that weren't consistent across the country. Um, this became so much of a problem that when the French Revolution happened, one of the things that the revolutionaries decided they needed to do was that they decided that they needed to invent an entirely new system of measurement. And so they invented the metric system. But they, they, this they, they designed... had a rallying cry, forgive my French, un roi, <laughs> un loi, un poids, et une mesure. One king, one law, one weight, and one measure. Was that something right. that came with the French Revolution or was that already there by the time of the French Revolution? That was sort of building up in in the run up to the French Revolution. Um, it was one of the complaints that the people had that um, you know that there was this inconsistent system of measurements and that it made life hell. Basically, it made life really annoying. But it was also you know it wasn't just the the peasants who were annoyed by this, but also the elites as well, because they thought that if you don't have a single uh, system of measurement, it was bad for economic growth. And I think you know there's obviously a lot of truth in that. That if you are say trading something from one side of the country to the other and uh every time you stop to trade you have to work out what the new system of measurement is that's obviously going to slow down your progress it's going to make things complicated you're going to get annoyed your people are going to get annoyed so it was a big complaint across the whole of society and there were these variable sets of units for example a king's foot yeah that was um, the so pied du roi. So a king rat. with a small foot would uh, uh, 
uh, require <laughs> different system of, of measurement than one who had big feet? I, I think it was more symbolic than it was literal. You know, there were lots of units um, like the ancient Egyptian royal cubit, you know, that were said to be defined using the body parts of uh, the monarch. Um, but they tended to be sort of standardized. They didn't change them every time they got a new king or new queen in. Although they occasionally did, you know, a new king or new queen might want to shake things up and say, I'm going to standardize weights and measures. And there's some evidence that Queen Elizabeth II um, made all her units uh, or updated all the units and made them a little bit bigger. And perhaps that was, you know, her way of saying to her predecessors, you know, I may be a woman, but, you know, I've got a bigger foot than you. <laughs> so... The metric system was devised as a radical solution. Uh, mm. It was supposedly based on uh, the invariable dimensions of the Earth itself with its central unit, the meter, derived from a fraction of the planet's meridian. How could they have mm. even known that? So they did measurements um, using uh, trigonometry, essentially. Um, so they they were calculating not necessarily length, but angles. Um, so based on what the they curve did is they, of the Earth? Based on the curve of the Earth, exactly. So that they measured a section of uh, the European continent um, on the meridian line that goes through Paris. And then they sort of um, multiplied that to get their calculation for the, um, the length from the North Pole to the equator. And then they divided that by 10 million to get the length of the meter. And, you know, there was no real reason for them to choose a 10 millionth division. It just sounded neat and it was about the right size for their purposes. But yeah, that was the original definition of the meter, one ten millionth of the distance from the North Pole to the equator. Didn't they also see it as an internationalist gesture? gesture? Yeah. A they, kind of a, a, so, a way of uniting people around the world? Yeah. The th meter? This is because... The, yeah, the meter and the metric system was, was very much a political project, right? It wasn't just about creating a standard system of units that would solve these problems for, you know, the French people. It was about a sort of international gesture. Um, you know, you think about the politics that came about with the French Revolution, the sort of ideals that people were trying to encourage. So you have universality, you have fraternity, you know, you have sort of brotherhood, freedom. Um, and they wanted the metric system to reflect these ideals. So they thought, you know, instead of having units defined based on individual nations, we'll come up with one set of units that is taken from the earth itself. So that's, you know, that's taken from humanity's shared heritage that hypothetically anyone can remeasure and check for themselves when they want to. Um, and this was sort of part of the reason that the metric system succeeded is that it was seen as um, unlike earlier systems of measurement, not tied to any particular country, but rather something that was, as you know, a scientific ideal that everyone could embrace equally. And uh, it went beyond just simple science. Leaders and kilograms were seen as rational, scientific, but also humane. Yeah. Yeah, because, because they were replacing this old system of power um, in which, you know, instead of the pied du roi, the foot of the king, you'd have the meter. So it was about upending all these old, um, all these old hierarchies of power and having a system that anyone could access and that would be equal to everyone as well. Not all of the proposals uh, succeeded. Didn't they uh, come up with 
Something that seems reasonable, a 10-day week. <laughs> they did. So when the revolutionaries were um, in introducing the new systems of weights and measures, they thought, you know, this is a way, this is a tool for us to mould the people into, you know, true revolutionary subjects. And they thought, well, if we're doing it with weights and measures, why don't we do it with the calendar? Why don't we do it with time itself? So the next thing they introduced after this, the metric system, was the French Republican calendar, which um, replaced all the traditional Gregorian months and gave them new names. And it created 30 day months, uh, which had um, uh, three weeks in them. And each week had 10 days in it. Um, and you can probably see uh, one of the problems here is, OK, uh, so I'm working a longer week for the yeah, same weekend. <laughs> Yeah, it's longer. You, you you had to work eight days before you got a rest if the if you were going to get a two day rest. Uh, how did that work with biblical thinking? Well, this was another reason that they introduced it is that they wanted to get rid of the influence of the church on uh, on everyday life, basically. And the you know the the church calendar was a huge thing for people in France at this time. Um, and you had a, a long succession of sort of saints' days and feasts and celebrations. And of course, you had the Sunday where everyone would go to church. Mm -hmm. And the French Revolution, you know, in its in its peak, in its height, was very atheistic. It even tried to set up an alternative religion, um, which was sort of the worship of rationality itself. It didn't go down very well as it happens. But they thought by getting rid of the calendar, they'd get rid of the influence of the church on everyday life. Um, in fact, each of the days in the new calendar they created was dedicated not to a dead saint, but um, a plant <laughs> or a vegetable or a, an agricultural instrument because they wanted to venerate everyday life and the work of everyday peasants. The process continues to go on. Recently, hasn't there been a precise redefinition of the meter as equating to, and now this uh, number doesn't mean anything to me, but 1,650,763.73 times the wavelength <laughs> of light? Yes. Uh, well, it's not. It's it's the length of a path of light traveled in a vacuum in 1 over 2, 299, 792, 458ths of a second. Um, so there was a, there was a definition that tied it to the wavelength of light, but that was um, uh, replaced later on by this definition of the distance traveled by light in a vacuum. Um, and, and the reason is for the same reason that they replaced the kilogram, essentially, is that there used to be a physical standard that was used to define the meter. But eventually they, you know, they realized that that was a sort of flawed thing to have because all physical standards will eventually decay and get old and need to be replaced. So they came up with these definitions that are based on universal constants, you know, that are based on things that we think or as far as we know are unchanging throughout the universe. So that might be the speed of light or it might be quantum constants or it might be the revolution of atoms. Um, and the idea is that these are going to be the same forever. So the metric system is going to be unchanging for the rest of time. <laughs> Although... Uh, I for somebody like me, unscientific, a kilogram now being M equals HF slash C2 doesn't mean <laughs> much. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I have mixed feelings about this, right? Because I sort of, a lot of my research um, 
is about or ended up being about what measurement means to people and what it means to people's lives. And, you know, I talked earlier about how you used to have these old units like the collop where they would be defined by, you know, something that, you know, w- w- was measure was measurable in a different way. Right. It was, you know, the amount of land to graze a cow or whatever it was. And I think there's something a little bit sad in a way um, about the way that the metric system is defined using these abstract measurements. On one hand, they're very beautiful, right? They are sort of cutting edge science and they are they represent a real uh, high point for humanity's knowledge of the universe. But on the other hand, as you say, they mean nothing to people in a weird way. You know, if I tell you that a, you know, a kilogram is this or a second is the, the number of rotations of the cesium-133 atom, you know, in, in a way that is sort of, it, does it lose some of the magic, right? And I think that's a, an open question that I don't really have an answer to. You're listening to Let It Locate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay, so it's time to measure The right tool's gonna make things easier With your tool, you're no fool Better use these tools of measurement Thermometer captures temperature Rulers measure length Better use these tools of measurement I hope you're enjoying my conversation with James Vincent. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Beyond Measure. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to James Vincent, whose book, Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Cubits to Quantum Constants, is published by W.W. W. Norton. He is a senior reporter for The Verge, the Vox Media site devoted to technology and society, and also has written for the London Review of Books, Financial Times, and Wired. Uh, and um, I'm pleased that you could join us here on WBAI. Unfortunately, we have to do fundraising. You live in England where the uh, the, the British government uh, forces people to pay for the BBC whether they listen to it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that is true, but I happen to think it's um, uh, a pretty good service. And they don't necessarily force people to pay for it you know there is um a license uh, fee, such a thing as a there? tv license yeah. yeah but if you don't have if you don't have a tv you don't pay the oh. license fee oh uh, how many people don't have a tv but that's a whole other issue let's True. get back to measurement um has opposition <laughs> to the metric system been seen as a form of patriotism in some countries yeah absolutely so you know the metric system because it started out from this political basis, um, um, although it was, you know, the, the French tried to make it out as being this sort of uh, a universal thing, 
it was very much tied to the French Revolution and the political ideals of that. And that meant that there was quite a bit of opposition to it in um, in various countries. And particularly, as you might guess, in the US and in the UK. Um, you know, there were lots of reasons that people objected to it. But one of them was that they felt that it was a French invention and that they didn't want, you know, French units to be imposed on them by a foreign power. Um and it, I think that is because there is this deep history that connects measurement to political sovereignty. You know, if you define your units of measurement, then it's sort of like defining your own language or defining your own currency. If someone tries to take it away from you, you're probably going to be a bit annoyed about it. Didn't Victorians believe that the pyramids were built using British measures? <laughs> they did. I don't think anything sort of represents British hubris hubris <laughs> more succinctly than that, eh? Um, there was there is a sort of weird story behind that, which is um, during the 19th century um, was when, uh, you know, there was a there was a craze for all things Egyptian in, in Victorian England, and people were obsessed with uh, pharaohs and mummies and all these sorts of things. And one of the results of that was they were very interested in the Great Pyramids, and they took a lot of measurements of the Great Pyramids. And um, this publisher, um, a guy named uh, John Taylor, I think it was, um, came up with this theory, which he called uh, pyramidology, um, which hmm. suggested that the measurements of the Great Pyramid encoded these hidden truths about the world. That, you know, if you measured it on its side, you'd get pi. If you measured its sort of, you know, the ratio of its angle to the span of the what's it, the doodah, you know, all these sort of fantabulous um, calculations, you get the distance from the earth to the moon or the earth to the sun, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, they did all these measurements. And one of the things that uh, they theorized was that there was such a thing as the pyramid inch and that they thought that the British inch and the, um, you know, well, the American inch as well um, were descendants of this original inch and that the inch had been encoded into the stones of the pyramid by none other than God himself. Um, and that God has sort of designed the pyramid to be this lasting measurement standard that would last for all time and that we could divine measurements from. Um, and the, the sort of the result of this, um, this, this pseudoscience, this, this bizarre theory, um, was that some people believed that the inch was a holy measurement mm. and that if you got rid of the inch, you were sort of defying God. So many anti-metric campaigners said the inch, the pint and other measures had been divinely bestowed yes yeah that they were yeah that they were god's chosen measurements and if we got rid of them we were giving up on this sacred heritage and you know again it sounds bizarre but i think this sort of speaks to the understated importance of measurement in people's lives you know it, it seems like a, a thing that we forget about a lot of the time but actually these units can be really really meaningful to people well Looking at some of the things that are going on politically around the world today, I'm not surprised <clears throat> that cockamamie ideas like that were, <laughs> were adopted by some. The, the, the first anti-metric pressure group, the U.S.-founded International Institute for Preserving and Protecting Weights and Measures, began in the 19th century. And didn't they have their mm. own theme song, A Pints a Pound the World Around? Now, if you're going to ask me to sing it, I'm going to have to decline. <laughs> I don't think the I don't think radio is ready for my singing voice. <laughs> but yeah, that was um, that. You know, this group uh, they came up with 
pamphlets. They sort of lobbied politicians. They had little rallying, uh, you know, rallies that they met at. And yeah, they had their own theme song as well. Um, and I, I assume they must have sung it to one another, but uh, I can't imagine it being much of a, a catchy tune. <laughs> and what was the goal there finally? To say the that goal, the good that to say that the metric system was was a big mistake. Yeah, the goal the goal was just to make sure that the U.S. never adopted the metric system, mm. basically. And the U.S. has sort of always flirted with the metric system in in many ways. You know, um, it well, was scientists that, use it, don't they? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, this is the thing: the U.S. is technically metric. No one, no one in America believes me when I tell them this, but. Ever since 1893, I believe it is, um, the U.S. customary measures as the technical name for, you know, your system of um, uh, of, of, of weights and measures of uh, the, the foot, the gallon and so on. They are defined using metric units. You know, there is no such thing as a foot. A foot is only a proportion of a meter. And it's because the metric system and the people who have maintained that over the centuries, they have done the most cutting edge scientific work. So America is in many ways secretly metric, which I don't know, does that is that upsetting news or are you are you OK about that? Uh, you know, I grew up with the f inches and feet, et cetera, because, well, that's what I was yeah. taught. But if I had grown up with the metric system, that would have been perfectly fine, too. I, yeah. I, I don't see this as a political issue. I just simply see this as what the system that is imposed on you when you're a kid. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I, I, you know, I don't think... Um, I don't think it needs to be really much more complicated than that. It's, it's whatever you're familiar with. However, there are certainly lots of people in the US and the UK who get upset about the idea of having to use metric units. And it's not just because they're unfamiliar, I think, although that is certainly part of it. It's because they feel emotionally attached to the certain units. You know, I think in the UK, for example, if you ever tried to get rid of the pints in the pubs mm. and replace them with liters or half liters, you'd have riots. You'd you'd have you'd have people out on the streets. You know, that would that would never go over. And I think in the US as well, you know, the US has tried to introduce metric units uh, a few times, you know, most recently under um, in, in, in the 70s and um, Reagan got rid of the initiative um, and people were pretty unhappy about it, as I understand. Well, how did Boris Johnson get into the act recently? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I was going to going to say uh, he's another example of how measurement can be used in a sort of quite cynical way for political uh, ends. So, you know, the, the UK has a, a bit of a fraught history with different systems of measurement. Um, you know, we, we have technically been metricated, but we still have old imperial units that are used in many areas of life. Um, and for many people, the issue has always been connected with the EU because the EU is obviously a hmm. full-on metric um, uh, trading block, and that's where metric systems come from. They come from Europe. Um, and so people thought that um, when the UK joined the EU, that they were being forced to be metric. Now, as it happens, that's not quite true. You know, the EU eventually said to the UK, you can choose whatever measurements you like, um, just stop complaining about it. <laughs> so they gave us that freedom. Um, but when uh, we left the EU with Brexit, um, 
lots of people thought that, oh, we're going to have a return to the old imperial units of measurement. And Boris Johnson, one of the sort of last things he did before he was kicked out of uh, number 10 was launch this consultation about the return of imperial measures. Um, and, you know, my opinion is that it was just a very cynical political move that was intended to annoy his opposition, but also to sort of um, drum up support in the conservative base. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is James Vincent. We are discussing his book, Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Cubits to Quantum Constants, published by W.W. Norton. You write about an adventure with a man named Tony Bennett, not the great American singer, but a member no. of a group... Uh, who, who? Uh, well, he was on a clan, clandestine mission to sabotage signposts in his Essex village by replacing uh, metrical distances with equivalents in, in yards or miles? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Tony Bennett is a member of a group called ARM, which stands active for resistance um, Active Metrification. That's them. That's them. And that they are a metrological guerrilla group. You know, they are literally they're fighting the front lines of the battle between um, metric and imperial units. And they've been around for a while. Uh, they're very happy about the Boris Johnson news, incidentally. Um, but their sort of method is they go on these raids where they replace um, signposts, which are marked in metric units, uh, marked in meters. Uh, with ones that are uh, marked in imperial units instead. Uh, you know, they're basically a group of, um, I, I'd say, uh, most of them pensioners. Uh, they're of an older generation, certainly. And they go around the country, they tear down signposts, they paint over them, they replace them with stickers. And so I obviously I, I heard about these guys and I was like, well, can I come with you? <laughs> can I go on one of these raids? <laughs> Um, and me and Tony Bennett ended up going on this raid in the town of Thaxted, which is this lovely, lovely, beautiful town, my old market town. And we replaced some signposts. Um, we we actually had to end up making these sorts of um, quite official looking stickers, basically, uh, made out of a sort of hard plastic. And we went into the village. We'd had a few pints to drink, obviously, beforehand. You know, a bit of, bit of, bit of courage was needed. And we dressed up as council workers. Um, so we put on high-vis uh, jackets and vests. And we had, a, you know, an official-looking stepladder with us. And we replaced these signposts. <laughs> and um, I've not been back to check if they're still there, but I hope they are. You asked about growing up with the uh, the imperial system or whatever system. Yeah, I've always wondered how it was determined that the temperature of at which pure water freezes is thirty two degrees Fahrenheit and the boiling point of water is two hundred twelve degrees Fahrenheit. Those numbers seem a bit arbitrary, uh, considering the fact that the metric system uh, has a m much more understandable version. Yeah, well, this was um, a big trouble back in sort of the 1600s onwards, which was how do you create a, you know, reliable system of measurement um, and uh, sorry, a reliable system of measuring temperature specifically, um, you know, because if you're measuring temperature, how do you know your thermometer is given the same reading as my reading? And they eventually came up with this idea of um, trying to get a stable uh, thermometric phenomena. So sort of things that are the same temperature whenever they happen. Um, and they came up with eventually uh, the freezing point and the boiling point of water. Now, the reason that Fahrenheit is um, 
a relatively weird scale. Um, it's a bit of a long history, but essentially it was not originally um, that amount of numbers. Um, the guy who came up with Fahrenheit, it was originally an earlier set of numbers um, and it was based on a different thermometric phenomena. The one the Fahrenheit he... scale was proposed in 1724 by a physicist named Daniel Gabriel Fahrenheit. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, so how were and... temperatures determined before that? Were they similar? Well, they they had lots of different um, definitions that they used. Um, I can't remember exactly what the ones that the Fahrenheit scale were based on originally, but people came up with all sorts of things that they thought were these fixed um, thermometric phenomena. So one was the melting point of butter. People thought that that would be a good marker for temperature. Another was the temperature of the catacombs in Paris. Um, another was the temperature of freshly drawn blood, um, which is actually a pretty good one because blood does tend to be a pretty stable temperature um, that, um, you know, is a, is a useful benchmark. And an early thermometer invented by Isaac Newton included temperature benchmarks such as the greatest heat of a bath which a man can bear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, it, you know, it's the sort of thing that, again, you know, I, I think it speaks to this history of measurement as something that is based on lived experience, you know. And it, it's, it's, it's not a consistent unit of measure, obviously, but it's a pretty good, you know, you get a good idea of how hot that is, at least. <laughs> so the alternative was Andrew Celsius's uh, version and he, mm. his temperature scale placed the boiling point uh, at the bottom as zero degrees centigrade and the freezing point at 100 degrees centigrade. Uh, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? What, what's wrong <laughs> with that? Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the thing that measurement is sort of arbitrary. That was originally how the Celsius scale was defined with zero um, as the boiling point and 100 degrees as the freezing point. And it wasn't until a few years later that it was flipped around. Um, now, no one really knows why Celsius did it like that. And one theory is that because he was um, living in Sweden, he was a Swedish, a Swedish astronomer, um, it was colder there than it was warmer there. So he wanted more headroom when it came to measuring colder temperatures. So that's why he put the numbers going up for higher heat, for sorry, for colder things than going down for hotter things. Um, it was flipped around a few years later after his death, and that became the standard Celsius um, temperature scale that's now part of the metric system. Sometimes measurement can be used on a political level or, uh, well, to distort things. For example, uh, IQ, uh, attempts to quantify human intelligence have led to mm. some atrocities in the name of eugenics. Yeah. 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 I, that's this one sort of that was one really well, I mean, grim, very grim thing to write about in the book. Um, I was discussing the history of statistics and sort of how measurements in aggregate are used to reflect quite complex things in society. And, you know, statistics was originally invented to give uh, governments an idea of what was going on in their country. That's actually where the, you know, the etymology of the word comes from. It come, it's linked to the word state. Um, but as statistics became more of a developed science, people started applying it to humans. And they started doing things like measuring, you know, heights in populations and, you know, chest sizes and weight and all this sort of thing. And eventually they started trying to measure intelligence as well. Um, 
and I think there's a there's a dark history to the IQ test and the way it got involved in eugenics. But actually, the person that came up with um, the standard IQ test, the Binet IQ test, who was this French psychologist, um, uh, Alfred or Al Alphonse Binet, I can't quite remember. Um, he came up with the IQ test and he thought it would be a really useful tool for helping people. You know, his idea was that the IQ test would be used to identify children who were perhaps struggling in class and then they could get extra help. Um, and he worried um, and he, he warned against this and very um, prophetically, as it turns out, he, he warned that people shouldn't confuse an IQ test for a concrete measure of someone's intelligence. He always said an IQ test is just a snapshot and intelligence is not fixed. It's something that can be changed with education and it's something that can change over time. Um, but people started thinking that the IQ test recorded something that was very real and that was uh, unchanging in, in, in individuals. And that led to or helped feed this ideology of eugenics, the was, idea that we can breed smarter populations. It was Alfred Binet. Just one more thing. Binet. We have no time. But has the metric system <laughs> been adopted pretty much throughout the world? Are there any other countries other than the United States and Britain who <laughs> retain the imperial system? Well, the you are the U.S. is part of a very small club of uh, countries who declare themselves to be non-metric. The U.K. is not non-metric. The U.K. just has certain elements of um, non-metric in use. But there's only two other countries alongside the U.S. who are thought to be non-metric, and that is Myanmar and Liberia. Oh, so it is a very company. small club. Thank <laughs> yes. you so much for being on our show, James Vincent. The book Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Qubits to Quantum Constants published by W.W. W. Norton. Thank you so much for having me, Leonard. Really enjoyed our chat. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. You should check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to wbai.org right now. That's give and the number 2 wbai.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Beyond Measure, by James Vincent. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI. Org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member to help us plan for the future, what we call a BAI buddy. 212-209-2950. Uh, I hope you can join us tomorrow when my guest will be Gautam Mukunda discussing his new book, Picking Presidents. We'll see you then. <laughs>